Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our session on expressing the private self. Um, I'm Lorraine Patterson. And I'm with the Oxford Centre for Life Writing at the moment. Um, our first speaker will be Catherine Gleedell. She's a tutor and fellow in history at Mansfield College and the University of Oxford. She's written extensively on 19th century British culture and on female political engagement in particular. Catherine is currently writing a study of children's manuscript culture in the long 19th century, and her talk today is entitled Ducky Darlings and Rotten Eggs, Subversion and Silence in the Juvenile Diaries of Eva Natchbull Hewkson. Thank you very much, Catherine. Hi, thank you. I'd like to introduce you to Eva uh, Natchbull Hewkson. Uh, those of you who were in uh, Catherine Delafield's panel this morning uh, will quickly realise that this is a, essentially a sequel. Um, Eva is the daughter of Lord Braeburn, who um, Catherine was talking about, the uh, um, publisher of Jane Austen's uh, letters. But today I'd like to explore some aspects of the extraordinary juvenile archive of this young Victorian girl, Eva, who was born in 1861. And my broader purpose is to consider, I think, firstly, what we can learn by inserting juvenile archives into our stories of uh, family manuscript cultures and family um, identities more broadly, but also what we might call the fraught emotional economies of the archive itself. So I want to start by getting you to listen to 12-year-old Eva recounting the story of her brother Ned's birthday. She uh, gives a lively description of the presents, the games, so on and so forth, and then she suddenly interrupts her own narrative. She interjects, I must just say that Todd, one of Papa's ducky darlings, is here. That's to say one of the boys Papa has taken up, though he is 19. She then records her horror as uh, she's sitting there waiting, they're all wait, they're waiting to go into dinner and she's waiting to see who she's going to be paired off with to be handed in. And she records in her diary that I had been calculating to myself and I had come to the conclusion that Cecil, that's her little brother, would take me in. So, my dear diary, note the address, comic address to the diary, you may imagine my horror underlined exclamation mark, disappointment underlined, and disgust when Mama said, Mr Todd, will you take Evie in? He advanced towards me, but I said boldly, I'd rather not. Todd said, oh pray don't force her, she's mortified, uh, and she says, I went in alone. I think it's remarkable the way in which this young girl has found a vocabulary in which to express what she clearly feels his unease at this rather apparently transgressive relationship that her father has with this young man, Arthur Todd. Um, and note the way, way in which she is also using social convention to draw attention to that transgression, though he is only 19, and then almost distancing herself from the awkwardness of that um, kind of emotional encounter by using that very comic appeal to the diary genre. Um, what is interesting in this story is that that is one of the last mentions that she makes of Todd 
uh, other than brief curt references to him, even though he begins to assume a bigger and bigger role within the family dynamics. So she becomes increasingly silent on him, um, despite, or rather perhaps because of, that really critical role that he seems to be playing in the family's emotional economy. And I would like to explore what we might term a micro-methodology for teasing out some of those tensions a little bit further. Because we're very, well, I'm very fortunate in that uh, for the, there are some years when we have Eva's diaries alongside her father's diaries. Um, and so we can plot day by day the different ways in which they are recording particular events. Her father, Lord Braeburn, uh, was to become Lord Braeburn in 1882, uh, was a Liberal MP, uh, a cabinet minister, and also the author of a number of children's fairy tales. So, and I want to explore how these parallel diaries enable us to plot different layers of silences and self-censorship. How did two family members record the same event? What broader narratives did they uh, maintain or oppress? And in so doing, I'd like to think about some of the broader implications, as I said, for how we understand the construction of archives. Okay, on the 19th of December, 1874, it was Eva's birthday. My 13th birthday, she said, and there follows 13 exclamation marks. I had my presents after prayers from Mama, a small musical box which plays four times God Save the Queen, Bonnie Dundee, the Carnival of Venice, and Off Through the Stilling Night. From Papa, an awfully jolly horse and carriage from my dolls. From Ned, small watercolour paint box. It goes on and on. She finally ends the day's event saying the cake was pretty to look at, but not very nice. Here's her father. Note, awesome beard, Braeburn. Needless to say, his diary entry for the same day was rather different. He certainly began it with the comment, Eva's birthday, open brackets, 13, close brackets. But after recounting that, he launches into what was his central emotional concern at this point in time. He says, heard from Browning and my dearest Arthur with the joyful news that the latter can go abroad with me till March. Um, Edward, the father, had written to the master of University College in this very institution, where Arthur was a student, asking if, you know, he could take a whole term off and go with him uh, to Italy. Um, this didn't seem to be a particular problem uh, in Oxford in the 1870s. <laughs> Um, and he had sought to secure Arthur's uh, company with him on this trip, just the two of them, even though Arthur had already promised to go with Oscar Browning, mentioned in the letter. Browning was the controversial Eton tutor who was to lose his post at the college later that year over his apparent sexual liaison with the pupil, George Curzon. Browning and Natural Huggerson were friends, and in the following year, Edward was also to form an intimate relationship with George Curzon himself. So we've got um, Eva's birthday, and then we have the Arthur Todd bomb dropped into the middle of this happy family occasion. Needless to say, uh, Eva's mother, Annie, wasn't impressed. She was furious. Edward recorded uh, later that December, his wife was so angry with my going abroad with Todd. 
He claimed that her behaviour towards him and the, quote, appalling language that she'd used about Arthur Todd meant that he could no longer alter his plans even if he wanted to because, quote, I would then lose any hope of ever having any authority in my own house again. And that very much sort of gives some of a certain kind of aspect of this man's character. He goes to Italy for three months with this young man. On return, matters a little better, no better. He records on June the 7th, my best, my dearest friend, Arthur, is kept from coming to see me in my home by my wife's insane dislike of him. She says she will leave the house if he comes here. So I want to consider how these tense family, go back to Eva, tense family dynamics uh, are played out and particularly how Eva negotiates her relationship with this very dominant and often domineering man. Because on the one hand, we have a kind of hyper-performance of femininity in this document. Uh, you know, note the pink dress, at other points in the diary, pressed flowers, the winsome illustrations, that's the end of the diary, uh, that you can see there. But I think there's also um, something much more complicated going on. In many ways, she's actually subverting this genre, because this is the index... Uh, and many of these moments are actually moments of really appallingly bad behaviour that she has written up in this beautiful uh, feminine form. Um, for example, the one I want to focus on, which I can't see at the moment, is rotten eggs. Right there, the rotten eggs. Uh, this was a delightful incident where she and her brother collect a whole load of jackdaw eggs. Uh, they put them in a bowl of water to make sure that they've gone off. They take them, they sneak them in their... Uh, luggage to London where they're going for the parliamentary season with their father and then they throw them at passers-by out the window and uh, this becomes sort of part of family law this story which uh, comes up quite often in family documents and the way in which uh, the father has to write a letter of apology to the neighbours and uh, you can imagine. Um, Eva also has other diaries that she keeps, which I haven't got time to go into now, but this is a kind of anti-diary, which she uses in a very naughty way. Um, she turns the diary on its side when she wants to say um, particularly kind of rebellious things. She's used it here to pass a note to her brother, saying, I'll, I'll say that I'm sleepy, I'll go upstairs, and then you follow me up. That's literally a pocket uh, notebook there. Now, the, the broader um, context that, that you need to know is that Eva was writing within a very rich, self-conscious tradition of family archive keeping. Um, she was frequently introduced and acculturated into a world of family archiving, um, the extensive diaries and letters that the wider kinship had. And one aspect of that was the Jane Austen tradition, so she is the great, great uh, niece of uh, Jane Austen. And this provides a really interesting kind of counter-light motif through the, this uh, family culture because it provides one very empowering model for Eva, which she herself often explicitly situates herself within. Um, as Catherine was explaining this morning, it was a, a couple of years before this diary in 1871 um, that, that um, Jane Austen's juvenilia had been brought to um, public attention. 
And certainly another of the tensions within Eva's family is that of women's position. Uh, when she chooses to write in diary code later on, um, it is when she is deciding whether to take a job at Newnham College. Now, during this really tense family Christmas, um, when um, uh, we've had the, the story that I've recounted of Eva's birthday, and then he says that he's going on holiday um, with uh, this young man, Eva then records in her journal the presents that she is given that Christmas. And on one of them, she's rather reticent, and that is the publication from her father. Her father's present to Eva is, guess what, uh, a publication of his latest children's stories. This uh, collection included the delightful story, The Pig-Faced Queen, which um, is his take on what happens if you let a woman have political power. Um, with really horrible illustrations of, of women with hogs' heads and so on. Eva doesn't comment on this, and in a sense I would say she doesn't need to, because she was also a knowing and skilful creator of culture herself. Here is her classic manuscript novel, The Netherpont Tragedy, um, which illustrates fully uh, the characters and so on. This is Eva here. And The Netherpont Tragedy um, contains within it a hilarious and very knowing satire of romantic comic fiction, which some might argue was, was a lot more convincing and um, sophisticated than her father's uh, fairy tales themselves. Well, in order to take our story further, I want to um, fast forward a little bit to when Eva is 15, um, because that's the year when we have the completest diary for her alongside a complete diary for her, for her father. At this period, um, her father, Edward, was still in a very intense relationship with his ducky darling, Arthur Todd, um, her mother is still deeply unreconciled to it, to, to the situation. Uh, she still detests and behaves so shamefully to me about him, complains Edward. And he's also developing a new intimacy with George Curzon. And whilst the relationship between Eva and her father remains warm, they have a loving um, relationship, Eva increasingly, it seems to me, finds small strategies within the diary um, to indicate a kind of subtle knowingness of his um, ego-centred um, nature and, and the ways in which the family are often having to kind of mop up after, after that. And in this respect, it's often um, Edward's silences that I um, find most revealing. Um, and I think my favourite example of that is on one occasion... Um, he's got a fairly standard diary entry, nothing particularly interesting going on. On the right-hand side, he's got a list of who he's written letters to that day, which was his practice. And one of the people he's written letters to that day is uh, Lady Honeywood. Eva says, um, with great relish, that they had heard that... Um, um, this woman's husband, who's uh, an elite uh, member of their kinship network, high above them in social status, that the father gets report that the husband has died. So he immediately writes um, a letter of condolence to the widow, saying he'll be at the funeral, so on and so forth. Guess what? It was a mistake. He hasn't died. He's still alive. This is hideous social faux pas. But you see nothing of that in Edward's journal um, whatsoever. And increasingly, I think that the kind of 
little cracks in the relationship that we start to, oh God, okay, that we start to open up, um, focus around um, his public performances as an MP at a time when he is declaring himself very much opposed to women's suffrage. So listen to this. Uh, the father says, In the afternoon, Eva and I walked to Hatch and we saw Wyndham. The same uh, trip is reported thus by Eva. Went to Hatch to see Wyndham. Papa said his speech to me all the way there and all the way back. <laughs> Two days later, and this is one of my favourite moments in the diary, Mama read us a very bad report of Papa's speech in the Morning Post. <laughs> Uh, she's also very uh, scathing of his literary activities. Well, maybe scathing is too strong a word. She, she offers a critique. Uh, on the 25th of April, she says Papa read some of his new novel to them. It's rather amusing, but he has never tried one before, and I doubt he's finishing it. And I think this is especially significant, because in many ways, Eva is acting as the family archivist. She is putting together literally a scrapbook of... Uh, all his public um, appearances and reports of them. This is the index um, that he uh, composes of it. And so she has uh, a, an awareness that she's creating an alternative archive, I think, in her own journals. This is a family where childhood journals are circulated across the generations and they are read and reread in family forms. Um, so for me, there's a sort of alternative archive being created alongside this very normative one that we have. Um, it goes, I think, a little bit further. I don't think I have time um, to talk at the moment that uh, as uh, a woman in her, young, in her 20s, she then goes on to almost reinvent the rotten egg incident and the uh, very difficult relationship with Arthur Todd. She reimagines that whole scenario um, in a way in which um, that the father is seen to be completely wrong in the ways in which he handles the children. And this is a published story that appears in Blackwood's um, magazine. So I want to suggest that through subtle use of the diary form, including self-censorship, codes, and a complex um, juxtaposition of a whole variety of literary and manuscript practices, we see um, a rather um, alternative a material culture of remembrance being um, built in here. Um, and I want to use this, as I said, to think about the construction of archives. There's a great literature now on the extent to which archives are often uh, regimes of power and so on. But I think they can be far more uh, diffuse in their meanings and construction. And I'm particularly interested in how we can plot juvenile agency um, as a kind of counter-narrative um, to open up hidden aspects of family life that are often rather hard for, for us to, to get to. Thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. It was a wonderful talk. Um, next is Ria Suk Deo Singh, uh, who's a history default candidate at Oxford, based at the Wellcome Unit for the History of Medicine. Her research looks at the emergence of anorexia nervosa as a name disorder in Britain in the late 19th century, and she's particularly interested in understanding the concept of a diagnostic profile in the context of ideas about women's, women's, uh, and representations of women's bodies. She has an MA in the History of Ideas from University of London and a BA in History and Political Science from the University of Toronto. 
Welcome, Ria. Just to start, um, I guess I'll talk a little bit about how what I'm going to talk about today fits in with my work overall. Um, I'm a second year DPhil working in the history of medicine and um, specifically on anorexia nervosa in late 19th century Britain. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today, ideas about food and diet and women's diaries, um, forms one section of my thesis. And I also look at medical and sociocultural ideas about femininity, the female body, and food in an attempt to make comprehensible this emergent and somewhat enigmatic diagnosis. Um, I should say that this part of the project is very much a work in progress, and what I'm going to talk about today is a sort of broad sketch and preliminary reflection on how to approach these sources in my work. Um, I should also note that I'm working with a very loose definition of silence uh, for this paper. Um, what I'll talk about is really less about actual silences and um, more sort of about using silence as a metaphor. Um, so uh, anorexia is first articulated by the physician Sir William Withy Gull in 1874. Um, he describes uh, fairly pithily a disease that is easily recognized, diagnosed, and treated. He suggests the typical patient is female in between 16 and 23, though he does note having seen males um, with this affliction. The diagnosis, he says, is mostly negative, i.e. through determining the absence of visceral disease, and once this is established, through the additional features of extreme emaciation, amenorrhea, or the cessation of menstruation, and depressed vital function, so pulse, respirations, and temperature. He recommends a treatment course of rest, warmth, and the regular and frequent introduction of food, along with an efficient nurse, and he ultimately concludes that a favorable prognosis will generally be the case given timely intervention. So the picture of anorexia he presents is simple, straightforward, uncomplicated, a far cry from the diagnosis we're familiar with today. Following the publication of Gull's case histories on Mrs. A, B, and C, anorexia appears in British medical journals fewer than 30 times by the end of the century. So from a medical point of view, anorexia in this period is best understood as rarely diagnosed and as a rarely diagnosed and reticent diagnostic entity. This presents certain challenges with research design. Um, for one, the pull of presentism, which in one form or another is fairly common throughout the historiography, as is a propensity to read overmuch into the material, particularly in attempting to capture or account for the motivations of the young female patients, and also, I think, in critiquing the physicians in their approach, um, and significantly a dearth of direct sources. With this last point in mind, then, how to build up a picture of anorexia in this period. Well, to start with, I ask the open-ended question of what kinds of things are being said by physicians, by the culture, and for today's paper, by women at this period of emergence. In the context of my work, diaries are a useful complementary source for evaluating a diagnostic profile in which phys physicians don't say much or often anything at all about why their female patients weren't eating. Are women themselves similarly reticent about such matters or can insights from their diaries lend historical perspective to this newly emergent medical disorder? I'm not where I want to be yet. So I'm um, just in terms of, I guess, theoretical inspiration. The historian of medicine, Roy Porter, has discussed, among other things, a growing hegemonic power of psychiatric language. He points out the phenomenon of the voice of the mad converging with the voice of the psychiatrist, saying, 
What is particularly noteworthy down the centuries is a growing rapport, even convergence, between the consciousness of the mad as expressed in their own writings and the lore and language of psychiatry. And further, unsurprisingly, of course, the earliest autobiographical accounts are untouched by psychiatry in any shape and form. Here, Porter's ideas provide interpretive inspiration in terms of considering the inverse of his proposition. How do people speak when there isn't a psychiatric language to converge with? In this case, how do women speak about their bodies, eating, how do they self-perceive when there isn't a language of medical pathology to converge with? Um, today, I'll discuss, well, I'm taking a long time here, um, a handful of examples that considered together for me, illustrate a range of attitudes found in women's writing and which serve as an argument of, in favor of resisting a hunt for anorectics approach to these sources or assuming a, con a continuity of pathology and experience. Um, and I'll just start with um, Florence Nightingale in her essay, Cassandra. Um, so not a diary, but uh, a useful starting point and segue for me. Um, what what Nightingale expresses here about lack of opportunity for women, um, the implicating of domestic duties and expectations, particularly around the dinner, the domestic dinner in this, uh, the suggestion of illness as reprieve, the privileging of the female body over the female mind, um, not to mention then her comments about the consequent status of the physician relative to that of the school teacher or governess. Um, is more than one could ask for when thinking about the meanings uh, and uses of food refusal in this period, and in many ways I think is reflective of the tone of much of the historiography um, that wants to see an almost politicized, if not, well, a purposeful, if not politicized, um, uh, action on the part of uh, these young female patients. But is this the only view? Is it a reflective view of women's ideas about food and themselves in this period? Um, well, Beatrice Webb, the noted Victorian social reformer, also writes about eating and women's work, and I've, I've just included some quotes here. I'm sorry if it's text-heavy. Um, over a period of just over two and a half years between October 1901 and May 1904, Webb documents in her diary an experiment with, quote, systematic abstemiousness. Um, she notes in detail the changes in what and how much she consumes and the positive and sometimes negative effects of this on her health and consequently her ability to work. Um, so we can see she's concerned with what would be a useful diet for a so-called brain worker. Um, she's going to note the experiment carefully. She's limiting her intake of food. And then we have her talking about how this has positive effects on, on her brain, her mind, her ability to work. Um, so for Webb, a restricted diet is undertaken not for weight loss, indeed she's troubled by this when it does occur, but for the improvement of her health as a means of improving her ability to work. Um, then as another example, um, Emily and Ellen Hall, um, who keep diaries for over 60 years, um, I've included some extracts here, they also reference work. Um, in, in reference to their friend, the English poet Louisa Shore, and although they don't speak about food or eating here, they do touch upon an idea, the virtue of usefulness in women, that is embedded in the physician's published case histories on anorexia, and which is an element that has drawn a certain amount of criticism in the scholarship. So the argument that the management of anorexia and the restoration of health in female patients um, being also a project in managing female sexuality and restoring appropriate femininity. Yet examples like this, though you know they're nothing new or all that unique, I guess, are a reminder that the ideas espoused by these physicians about femininity had wider purchase in the culture. 
Um, and in thinking about these parallels or pointing to the relationship between the medical and cultural spheres, they also suggest how a different analytical tone can be achieved when physicians', are, physicians account are evaluated in reference to the ideas of their context um, rather than ours. There's a similar, a similar potential um, when considering the diary of an Adelaide Pontney who wrote and illustrated diaries between 1863 and 1870. Her diaries from 1864 and 1865 have been published by her great niece. On December 7th, 1865, we have an entry that exclaims, fine at last, um, accompanied by a portrait. She's presumably referring to the weather, which had mostly kept her indoors in the preceding weeks. Um, the, introduction, the introduction to her published diary notes that though she herself made little of her colds, um, she was thought to suffer from a bronchial disorder along with her brother. They drew concern from her mother, who often ordered her to stay at home. So when she exclaims, it's fine at last, one might think she's referring to both the weather and herself. The accompanying close-up illustration, where usually there would be detailed group scenes, um, recalls the before and after photographs used by 19th century physicians to demonstrate their cases. Um, and this, again, is another, another element that's been critiqued in the scholarship, again, along the lines of the photographs representing the objectification and control of the female body, as well as the management of female, sexu female sexuality. Um, and I'm, I'm now reading over much into the material, um, one entry. But um, for me, images like this um, a reminder of the usefulness of assessing, assessing the physician's case histories in terms of their own context um, and the purposes they may have been using these photographs um, for, rather than sort of skipping ahead and critiquing them along, um, along sort of contemporary feminist lines. Um, and then lastly, Mary, Mary Vivian Hughes, um, in the second volume of her memoirs, A London Girl of the 1880s, relates an anecdote from her school days about school dinners and, and, and the headmistress. Um, and I've included some of it here. I'm, I'm going to relate most of it because it's really great. Um, substantial that school dinner undoubtedly was. Instead of my mother's homemade pasties or dainty sandwiches, I had to face pieces of meat, animal unknown, swimming in straw-colored water with two soapy potatoes and a lump of warm green, greens, followed by a slab of suet pudding with treacle. The girl next to me on the first day had had previous experience of these meals and had come prepared. On her lap, she had spread a sheet of paper, and ever and anon she would transfer to it a lump of the pudding. She told me that it got bigger in her throat and swallow it she could not. I don't mean to try, said I, and sat back. Presently, an official bore down upon me. You must eat your pudding, dear. It's a rule of the school that nothing must be left on the plate. But I can't bear those bits of suet that seem to ooze out and look at you, and I loathe treacle. Then you should not have taken it, dear. Well, they planked it down in front of me without a word, but thank you for telling me what to do. Tomorrow I shall refuse it. I was fortunate enough to be able to carry out this plan and supplement the meat course with apples and pears provided by my mother, eaten in secrecy and shared with my neighbor of the paper scheme. I say fortunate, for if my refusal had come to the ears of Miss Buss, there would have been an unpleasant time for me. Let alone fainting, she would not permit any symptom of illness or even weakness anywhere. Her demand for endurance and self-control was carried to a cruel extreme. Any suggestion, therefore, that a girl couldn't eat what was put before her would have set the school rocking. 
Um, in addition to these ideas about control and self-control, authority and expectation, Hughes also writes about her first days as a teacher. Um, here, contrasted with the seeming abundance of repugnant food is a dearth of food with implications for her and her pupils. As with Webb, there is a linking of nourishment and the capacity to work, but unlike Webb, limited food intake is thought to be a hindrance to the execution of her duties. So taken together, these few examples um, are meant to highlight, for me, and I guess because I know the backstory, um, the analytical possibilities presented by looking at how women themselves talked about food and using that to shed light on the medical profile of anorexia, which, as I noted earlier, doesn't say much, if anything at all, about why their female patients weren't eating in the first place. And to suss out and make sense of any commonalities, rather than interpreting the physicians, their cases, and their patients in reference to contemporary ideas about eating disorders and their treatment. Um, and to end, I'll just leave off with, um, with this quote from A Room of One's Own, which I happened to be reading on flight recently, um, and sort of stuck with me. Um, though she's talking about novelists here, not, not speaking about the sort of fundamentals of meals. Um, it's for me a potentially useful point to come back to. And that's because one of the challenges, I guess, of, of this project is that unlike now, where you have autobiographies, um, say graphic novels, um, all kinds of writing by, by women diagnosed with anorexia, either accepting, resisting their diagnosis, discussing their experience. Um, it's just um, wouldn't be possible in this period. Um, and we're also talking about a very small number, very small number of people who are officially, officially diagnosed as anorexic. Um, so my thought then has been along the lines of Porter to try to recover as many voices as possible um, so that the way physicians talk about anorexia or rather don't talk about anorexia, as I said, they don't say anything really about why they're why their patients may be engaging in this behavior. Um, rather than sort of taking that to be a striking, provocative omission, a sort of dereliction of duty on their part, um, part of the project of, of looking at women's writing is to, is to try to suss out, you know, to what extent, to what extent this behavior um, would have been a part of sort of greater concerns about um, bodies, uh, relationships with food, family dynamics. These suggestions are all sort of in the historiography um, that there is something in the larger culture that's productive of this behavior, which is a, a familiar argument now, I think. Um, but, but as I say, um, am, I, am I well under time? Am I or I'm okay? Um, okay, great. Um, so, so yeah, I guess my point here is where, where someone like Joan Jacobs Brumberg, who's, who's one of the main people writing on this topic, would suggest that, quote, young women searching for an idiom in which to say things about themselves focused on food and the body, or the suggestion that then is now um, young women use the refusal of food as, as, as an expression of inner states. I'm, I'm interested in Porter's proposition of a convergence and therefore seek to explore its inverse and to resist the assumption of a lineage, if not continuity, between the medical construction and experience of food refusal in the past and in the present. Um, exploring how women wrote about eating in their bodies, if they did at all, um, represents a unique opportunity 
I think to develop a deeper understanding of the medicalization of food refusal, newly conceptualized in this way in the late 19th century. Thank you very much, Ria, for a fascinating talk. Our final speaker in our panel is Lucy Ella Rose, who has completed a BA and ME in English Literature at the University of Sussex before completing her PhD at the University of Surrey earlier this year. So congratulations are in order for that. Um, her interdisciplinary PhD thesis explored the empowered role of women in 19th century artistic and literary partnerships. And as part of her PhD ship, she actually worked for three years at the Watts Gallery in Surrey, where she took, undertook research in the Mary Watts archive and transcribed her diaries for publication. She also curated two exhibitions there at the Watts Gallery, including The Making of Mary Seton Watts, which I'm sure was helpful for your talk today. Much has been written about the eminent Victorian artist George Frederick Watts, dubbed England's Michelangelo, who produced the world-famous symbolist painting Hope. Yet the life and visual and literary works of his lesser-known wife, Mary Seton Watts, remain largely unexplored. Mary Watts was a pioneering professional woman painter, ceramicist, liberties designer and illustrator, who became a famous name in the field of arts and crafts. She was also a writer and diarist, although her unpublished and hitherto untranscribed diaries have never before been studied. In addition to writing and publishing two books, a guide to her symbolic designs titled The Word in the Pattern, and her husband's biography titled The Annals of an Artist's Life, she also kept her own private notebooks, diaries, journals and books of miscellaneous jottings. Mary's eight extant diaries written between 1886 and 1908, covering her marital years to just after her husband's death, provided her with private, imaginative and intellectual spaces, safe from public scrutiny, as well as from her husband's gaze. I have worked for the past four years on the Mary Watts Archive at Watts Gallery in Surrey, where I transcribe Mary's diaries as part of my PhD research on women in 19th century creative partnerships. Mary's diary writing can be seen as an expressive fusion of forms and genres that is poetical, political, philosophical and autobiographical. She inscribes her personal thoughts, intimate feelings and physical states in a kind of writing of the female body which exemplifies elements of Helene Sixouz's concept of écriture féminine. Fragmentation, open endings, aposiopesis and ellipses pervade her diaries in which many pages have been torn out, stuck together or pasted in from elsewhere. Words and lines have been scribbled out, asterisks and arrows have been added. Her diaries are thus shrouded in mystery and secrecy. The many missing diary pages were allegedly torn out by the Watts' adopted daughter Lillian McIntosh in an attempt to censor any intimate or radical content so as to preserve the family's reputation. It is also possible that Mary edited her own diaries and even destroyed some in later life. Mary's minuscule, barely legible writing in her diaries suggests a revelation of her innermost secrets, and indeed they reveal her longing for children of her own, her feelings for another George, her secret rebellious spirit and her more radical private self. Long eclipsed by the dominant critical focus on her husband, Mary is invariably seen as his submissive acolyte and servant, nurse and slave, who worshipped him blindly. 
Yet while she publicly revered him, her diaries paint a very different, more nuanced and arguably more accurate picture of the Wattses. As his creative partner who worked alongside him in their Surrey studio home, she records how she often offered constructive criticism of his famous artworks under construction and even assumed the dominant role of, in her own words, brutal taskmaster. However, Mary's strong-mindedness was not always appreciated by her husband, and George's criticisms of her character and work approach the very patriarchal discourse he generally eschews. In 1887, when the couple had not yet been married a year, Mary records in her diary, My loved one said to me today that I did not quite help him as I ought, to be better and more kind in spirit. How could I, I said, unless I were to become quite an angel, and then wouldn't you want a little devil sometimes to play with? He tells me he thinks he could play with angels and not find them monotonous. He says to me, charity thinketh no evil. I say, yes, but charity's wife does. George criticises Mary's willfulness, willfulness, or rather strong-spiritedness, tells her how she ought to behave and voices an explicit desire for her subservience. However, she does not silently acquiesce in shyness or shame, but rather contests his authority and even mocks him with her witty replies. Her writing conveys her pleasure in playing the transgressive role of the evil little devil, the antithesis of the angelic role she was expected to play as the wife of a great artist and did perform in public. Her record of her response, in which she directly quotes her own retorts, suggests her pride in her private rebellious spirit and her refusal to be silenced in the home and studio. Although Mary generally displays humour and resilience in such instances, George's disparaging and demeaning remarks sometimes adversely affected her. Also in 1887, Mary records him patronisingly referring to her as a foolish little wife and tells her, I believe nature intended you only for a dreamer. Mary explores her feelings of insufficiency, stupidity, and even self-loathing in her hitherto unacknowledged, because secret, experimentation with poetry in the private pages of her diaries. Mary's sense of inadequacy and sometimes problematic relationship with writing is expressed in diary entries such as, I write, 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 each morning increasing the errors. I feel too stupid to write or think. What is the use of trying to write with a sodden brain like mine? My day to write, I sometimes wish pens were at the bottom of the sea. It is also conveyed by lines of her earlier self-reflexive poetry, such as, I know nothing, and it is best so. Because of the darkness, I cannot order my speech. Alas, all words are cold, and mine most weak. From a Sixusian perspective, this reflects the fact that the pen has been the privileged marker of men, while women's words have been traditionally relegated to the margins. They are enigmatic hieroglyphs of an absence, violently striving to become a presence. Mary's expressions can be read to convey women's frustration at being forced to write within the confines of a male-constructed linguistic system, as well as the struggle to overcome internalised patriarchal notions of women's inability and inadequacy. Many of Mary's private, or rather secret, secret poetic compositions in her diaries address the place of woman from first-person female perspectives, and even her ostensibly conventional verses can be seen as sites of struggle rather than submission. One poem reads, What do I know? 
Oh me, a weak, weak woman, how can I answer to a strong man's reasoning? How can I judge them, these men of great learning, men with great brains and high thoughts? The speaker is acutely aware of gender hierarchy and seemingly submits to, the patri to patriarchal authority, accepting her secondary and subordinate role in society. Yet an ironic or sardonic tone emerges in the rhetorical question and the melodramatic O, as well as in the repetition of weak and great, which exaggerates the supposed difference between men and women. This can be read slant as a mock glorification of men, implying disingenuous disingenuousness rather than straightforward deference. In this sense, Mary's poetry is comparable with Emily Dickinson's and Christina Rossetti's more famous verses infused with subversive undertones. Mary seems to play on dominant Victorian perceptions of the sexes in order to convey a profound sense of disident disidentification and frustration with them. While the subversive subtext may be subtle, Mary can be seen to use the female voice to highlight gender inequality and challenge phallogocentrism in the very creation of her verse, and the emergence of a distinctly feminist voice can be traced in her diaries. Significantly, she signs her initials and thus inscribes her poetic identity beneath her apparently self-effacing poetry. While Mary was known to be a liberal and keen suffragist during her day, her diaries reveal a more radical private self. In her 1893 diary, she advocates the breaking down of the strictest barriers between the sexes, champions free thought and speech and action, and admires the great liberality of the non-conformist mind. Mary's most explicit expression of her progressive position in relation to the early feminism of her day is documented in her diary of 1893, where she expresses the powerful feelings she experienced during a discussion with the famous Victorian writer and women's suffrage supporter, George Meredith. Meredith visited the Watts' Surrey studio house to sit for his portrait to be painted by George Watts for his Hall of Fame, um, which is a portrait collection of his famous contemporaries. In her diaries, Mary praises Meredith's subtle observations on women especially in his novels and writes, he seems to understand women better than any other man and he has blown the trumpet of greater freedom for them for many years. He is a leader of his times. She records their discussion in detail, writing, my morning with Meredith was one of intense enjoyment. I felt myself trembling from head to foot and had to steady myself as I sat by holding on to my chair. I can't say why. The pleasure of it perhaps was so great. His faith is in the adjusting of the balance, a better knowledge of one another, to bring about the wide sympathy, at least to reach the universal brotherhood, the perfect equality of man and woman. We want to be more naked, he said. Women especially, circumstances have so molded them, they are seldom them themselves. The male mind has so dominated them, he went on to say that woman is sometimes herself for just ten minutes, about midnight. The hope of the future lies greatly in the fact that woman is now beginning to take her place. He hopes to see a, fr a free intercourse between men and women, and would have boys and girls educated together at the same schools. Mary was evidently deeply inspired by Meredith's revolutionary vision of gender equality and female liberation and was moved by it even to the point of physical instability. In Sixouz's terms, she can be seen to represent the trembling body of the ebullient woman who writes, 
who feels a funny desire stirring inside her as she dares to bring out something new. Indeed, Mary's powerful physical feeling that was a positive force of intense enjoyment and pleasure so great is perhaps one of the earliest examples of, of Sixtus's notion of feminine jouissance, which is a term that um, denoting enjoyment with simultaneously sexual, political and economic overtones, um, which includes enjoyment in the sense of a legal or social possession of certain rights or privileges. Indeed, Mary's enjoyment here seems to lie in her recognition of the potential for greater gender equality and freedom for women. Mary's entry can thus be seen to demonstrate Sixtus's theory that writing is a space that can serve as a springboard for subversive thought, the precursory mo movement of a transformation of social and cultural structures. However, and this is the point I've been coming to, is that this entry can be read and interpreted in alternative ways, with an awareness of subtext and silences, revealing how Mary was seduced not only by Meredith's views, but by his presence or personality. The 21st century reader might wonder whether Mary felt forced into self-censorship when rereading the phrase, I can't say why, which is apparently an admission of her lack of explanation for her trembling, i.e. she can't say why because she doesn't know, and yet could also be taken to mean that she felt prevented from writing the true or full explanation, i.e. she can't say why because she thinks it would somehow be inappropriate. Linda Peterson draws uh, attention to a similar claim made by Mary Robinson in her er earlier memoirs when she records her encounter with the playwright Richard Sheridan who visited her at home. Robinson writes, I was overwhelmed with confusion, I know not why, but I felt a sense of mortification when I observed that my appearance was carelessly dishabille and my mind as little unprepared for what I guessed to be the motive of his visit. Peterson dismisses Robinson's claim, I know not why, as duplicity, in that Robinson knows retrospectively that her dishabille aroused Sheridan's sexual desire, which induced her sense of confusion and mortification. This can be compared with Mary Watts' encounter with Meredith and her duplicity designed to disguise the sexual nature of their connection and of her enjoyment in their private discussion. Meredith's proposal that women should be more naked and are only themselves for just 10 minutes about, about midnight, um, perhaps during sexual intercourse, is highly suggestive and even for the time salacious, especially since Meredith said this to Mary, a married woman alone. That she struggles to stand and, requ and requires support during their discussion suggests a romantic swooning or sexual excitement. There is something, I think, erotic and even orgasmic about this episode, in which her strikingly physical account of her uncontrollable trembling is not unlike the trembling of Edith Simcox, who wrote frankly of her erotic desire for another George, the writer George Eliot, in her autobiography. Reading between the lines, or rather beyond her apparent enjoyment in his socio-political ideas, Mary writes that Meredith understands women better than any other man, including presumably her own husband, and that he speaks differently to her in a delightful voice when they are alone, implying their secret flirtation. Um, in an earlier entry where Mary records the intimate act of Meredith reading his poetry to her, she writes, Meredith said that he felt he could talk to me from the first moment he saw me. 
And Meredith is, of course, known to have had many friendships with younger women who greatly admired him. In this light, it does not seem prurient to suggest that there was a romantic or sexually charged connection, as well as an evident bond over a shared aesthetic and socio-political view between the widowed Meredith and the married Mary, which would account for her not being able to write the real reason for her pleasure and intense enjoyment she records. This further illuminates the simultaneously sexual and political overtones of her jouissance, although the former is subtextual and even perhaps to some extent subliminal. Not only would the act of explicitly recording any sexual connection be an acknowledgement and self-admission of improper or, or transgressive extramarital feelings, but Mary may also have been aware that her diaries could be read by her husband, who writes in her diary of 1887, or anyone else that might come, come across them. Indeed, given its suggestive nature, it is curious that this was not one of the many pages later torn out of Mary's diaries, supposedly by Lily in an attempt to censor any confidential or controversial content. Perhaps this entry was comparatively mild in content compared to those removed. Perhaps Lily, assuming that she was the editor, failed to perceive its sexual subtext, or perhaps she did but thought it was right to retain it. Reasons open to discussion. While Mary's diary writing seems devoid of sexual content, perhaps because any direct references to sex were deliberately edited or censored, this is the best example of its sexual subtext, illuminated only on closer investigation. Any attempt to eschew or rationalise its risque elements may be a prudish attempt to prove, like many 19th century editors of women's autobiographies, that this narrative is safe as opposed to dangerous, because it stays carefully within the known boundaries of feminine behaviour. Yet this would be to ignore the evidence to suggest that those boundaries were blurred here. To overlook the sexual subtext is to limit an understanding of Mary Watts, her writing and her relationships. And a consideration of Mary Watts's more personal and political, politically charged diary entries perhaps goes some way towards demystifying the many missing pages. Thank you. Thank you.